Hello, everyone. I think we're ready to get started. Hello, I'm Jody Delaney. I'm the Executive Director of the Television Academy Foundation. I want to thank you for joining us for a conversation with industry professionals about how they use the power of sound to tell stories. We're joined today by some extraordinary Emmy nominees, uh, Jose Araujo, he's a production mixer for Tiger King, Logan Byers, the sound supervisor on Cheer, uh, Bonnie Wilde, who's a re-recording mixer and sound effects editor for The Mandalorian, and Joe Earl, uh, who is a re-recording mixer on Hollywood. Um, Joe is also a governor for the Television Academy Sound Peer Group um, and, and a good friend of the foundation, so I want to welcome everyone. Our moderator today is Glenn Kaiser. He's the director of the Dolby Institute and it's Dolby's initiative to bring education and inspiration to filmmakers and artists about the creative use of sound and image in storytelling. Glenn also hosts the Dolby Institute podcast, which is now in its sixth season, and that features in-depth conversations with artists about how they use technology, if you haven't tuned into that before. So before I turn it over to Glenn to introduce our panel and start the conversation, I wanna thank him and Dolby Laboratories for presenting this panel with us. Um, we really do appreciate Dolby's long-term partnership and support of the foundation and all that they do to support storytelling. Jody, thanks so much for that introduction. That was really fantastic, appreciate it. Um, indeed, uh, I'm the director of the Dolby Institute and um, I'm thrilled to be here with these amazing uh, MA nominees in the sound categories this year. Um, if, my, if my esteemed panelists can unmute their microphones and their videos and there we go here we all are uh fantastic so it's, it's 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 great to be here with everyone um i, I do want to uh, just thank jody and our friends at the television academy foundation for putting this together um we we got to have a little pre-meet conversation a couple of days ago and it was lively and fun so i think we're going to be in for a, a fun conversation today and uh, uh yeah let's just jump right into it because i know we only have an hour and we have four amazing artists who have all worked on very, very different uh, kinds of shows. So um, I really just wanted to start because I, I know that there are a lot of alumni and students um, uh, of the Television Academy Foundation programs that are, that are tuning in today. I really just wanna take a second and, and ask each of you um, super quickly, if we could just hear a little bit about your, your superhero origin story, uh, how you got started in the business, what, uh, what kind of ignited this passion for you about sound and maybe like who some of your influences and, and mentors have been. Uh, Jose, I'd love, I'd love to start with you. Okay. <clears throat> well, I come from a small town in rural Northeast Brazil. And um, when I was gr growing up, there was no electricity. So it means no TV, no movies. Until I was like nine years old. So listening was one of the things we could do. I mean, there was radio too, because people ran radios on batteries. So I think that made me think of sound because you had to interpret those sounds that were listening in the darkness or at night. And uh, so I always understood, I began understanding the power of sound very early. And then um, as it developed, one of the, I went on to school and I bought a recorder and began recording music and uh, religious rituals hmm. and then uh, after going to film school i started to develop this skill more learning about the machines and the, you know all the tools that you need for recording sound and uh, listening to experts and uh, since it was a film school we had to watch movies and analyze the tracks and uh, one of my i think big influences was this french filmmaker called bresson who use a lot of off-screen sound to show places. There's a famous scene of a film, he did Pickpocket, which is in a horse track, you know, and then uh, you were there, the guy is uh, stealing money from people and you hear the racetrack, but you never see the actual racetrack. And throughout his films, he used this, um, this kind of technique a lot. And, and it shows what sound can do. You know, you can create uh, big uh, environments and without seeing visually, and because people have the references. Uh, I, and then uh, right after film school, I began working in different projects. I was lucky to know a cameraman who used to travel throughout Latin America, and I 
began working in documentaries, expedition documentaries, and recording nature sounds was one of the first tasks I had to do for these, and which was a cool thing, you know, recording jungles and waterfalls and birds and animals. And uh, so later I got into doing narrative films and then it was a different experience altogether. And uh, you learn more how to work in a big team and to be part of a, a whole setup in which sound is just one department. It's not as present as when you're doing smaller like documentaries or TV. And uh, so the last few years, that's what I've been doing, recording films, uh, mainly documentaries after I moved to New York and uh, TV programs. I was about to say, it's almost, uh, you've almost come full circle back into the world of, of documentary filmmaking uh, again, which is, which is great. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, um, Logan, I'd love to hear from you. I, I can tell that, I, good, you just un unmuted yourself. So that, that, yeah. we, can hear, we'll, we can hear you now. Um, yeah, um, so I started off as a musician, super young. Um, first instrument was the saxophone. And once I got the saxophone, uh, music kind of took off from there. I learned, you know, all the other instruments. Um, got into high school and I worked at an elementary school. That was like the, my evening job. And on the computers there, when I would do computer class, um, GarageBand was uh, this little program. I saw a guitar and I'm like, oh, I like guitars. You know, what is this? And that was the first time I'd ever seen any kind of doll or workstation. And so, of course, you know, I started making beats with my friends, things like that, and getting into music and understanding how the basics of that work. Um, but at the same time in high school, I was in the animation program with some amazing animators. Uh, and then when we would finish our projects, we were like, well, what do we do now? Like, and I was like, well, I can put some music to it. Hmm. And so I would um, start putting music to it, um, but it seemed like it was lacking something. So I had the Apple Loops, you know, sound effect library. So I would start putting those kind of sound effects in there. And that's kind of how it started. And then I realized, you know, I think I want to do music for film. That was my original goal. So I started, you know, studying more music, ended up going to the Art Institute and fully focused focusing on music. And then when I took an intro to sound design class, uh, for me, it was like, this is, this is what I want to do for sure. Um, just creating these fantastic worlds uh, with nothing. And so I, during college, I started working professionally before I even finished school, because I had a couple people tell me, if you really want to get a job, you want to start working now, not when you finish college. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I hustled really hard. I took jobs on Craigslist for people that needed um, sound boom operators, um, people to write music, sound effects for short films. And, you know, I was getting paid nothing or, you know, very, very little. Um, but I, I was able to build a resume um, and build up my reel. I snuck on the CalArts campus and I posted flyers for, um, you know, sound design because CalArts has some of the best animators in the world. You know, they go to Pixar, they go to Disney, I thought, I want to work on some of these cool projects, these thesis films that these students get to, you know, present to these amazing places. And so that's what I did. I snuck on campus and I put my, my stuff on a wall along with a bunch of other people. And I started getting these calls and just the content I was getting was just amazing. These people were super talented. And when you get something that's super creative, it just gets you more excited. So then I started, you know, doing more sound design that way, um, became a freelance dialogue editor for several studios. Um, which dialogue editing was not my favorite, um, but it was something that I think I really needed to learn in order to do sound design and understand how those two work together. And then um, I got headhunted by um, Brian Reardon. He's the owner at Levels Audio, which is where I work now. And so he called me and asked if I would be interested in being their in-house sound designer there. And uh, I said, yeah. And so that's where I'm at now. Um, and I get to work on amazing content um, with amazing people. So, well, that's great, Joe. Let's uh, let's hear from you. Yeah, well, uh, a lot like Logan, I just kind of hustled my way along, and um, even in film school, you know, everybody wants to be a director or a producer, and nobody wanted to do sound. So, even before I got into the film school, I was at USC, but I would go to the film school and volunteer. And they would always stick me in the sound and say, here, just cut some sound for this, cut some sound for that. So I, as my skills 
kind of matured, you know, my fascination for sound kind of grew. And when I got out of school, you know, I went looking for jobs and most of the jobs that I could find were in sound, which <laughs> kind of figured everybody wanted to be a director or a producer. And, and so I got a lot of work and then there was a strike and there was a lot of independent filmmaking, but no, um, you know, union filmmaking. So I cut a lot of low budget horror movies and a, and a lot of really bad, bad movies and bad TV and worked my way up until I found uh, a friend at Tadeo who got me a job there. And that place at the time was just swarming with uh, the best mixers and the best editor in town. So, um, you know, I'd go in on any stage and sit down next to Chris Jenkins or Scott Milan or Greg Russell or you know, Anna Belmer, uh, Doug Hempel, you know, you could just go in and sit down next to them and talk to them and watch them work and just fueled my fire to, you know, really do more with the materials that I had. And so working as a sound editor there, um, you know, I really worked, tried my best to cut the right thing, give them the right material, go to the stage and see what they did with it. And and I wound up here. <laughs> That's great. That's great, Bonnie. I want to. I want to hear your story. Um, and I, I'll. I'll. I'll just acknowledge. I think you're coming to us from your mixing room at, at Skywalker Sound, where you're working maybe on season two of The Mandalorian. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. This is a. This is my lunch hour. <laughs> <laughs> it will probably be representative of the middle of the day, and. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I started like 17 years ago I, I, in England, obviously. I mean, much, really much, much like these guys, I was a musician originally. Uh, but my, my dad was a dubbing mixer. He worked in TV in England. So I knew that the job existed, which is like part of the problem, really. Like a lot of people <laughs> don't know that this is a job. So I, I knew this was a job. And I used to like spend summers with my dad at work. He would shove me in the in the uh, in the back room, the freezing machine room. I'd lay some stuff up, you know, china graph, whatever needed to be done. Clean the console when they were done with the mix and stuff. Um, uh, he showed me all the very unglamorous parts of 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 the work. And uh, I I I kind of always thought I would I wanted to work in music production. But kind of when I got when I got into studying, I was like, I don't know, I don't think this is what I want to what I want to do. And so I, I studied music. I did a, a music degree, but I would always do the tech, like the tech parts of it. So, you know, of age, I learned Cubase, things like that, you know, very useful. And um, uh, and then when I left college, um, I, I really wanted to get a job. But like, you know, we had a local post house. And so I kind of, again, hustled. This was pre-internet. And so I would have to just mail letters to like nameless person, that thing. My dad would say that he didn't know anyone. He would always say, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone. He refused and, uh, to help you. Yeah. He, yeah. I think <laughs> it really hurt me at the time. It turns out he did know somebody, but he just wouldn't. But I think it's because he knew essentially he didn't want people to think I'd got in because like my dad had given me the name of someone. I think he could probably foresee that, you know, maybe there would be reasons that I wouldn't get taken particularly as serious as maybe other peers. And he was like, no, you've got to get in there by yourself. <laughs> and so I did. I just wrote endless letters until I got um, I got an interview there. So I, I worked at this place, ITV Leeds in England. I made tea. I made tea for months. It's what we do in England. We make tea for everyone, take tapes everywhere, do all those things. But like the other runner, to, the other runners, the other runners there wanted to be directors and editors and everything. And I was like, well, I want to work in the sound department. And uh, so then eventually a job came up in the sound department. And then I did what Joe did. I mean, I just um, as, as the assistant in the sound department, you kind of you mix the Foley, but you're, you're just observing a lot. You know, you're listening and you're figuring out what the mixers are doing. And I was really lucky. I worked with mixers who would be really generous with their knowledge, you know and like one of the like my boss like Adam 
Seva's there, he would kind of like spill a fader over to me and he, you know, it was on the DFC and I could watch, I could watch what was going on, you know, how he was, you know, cleaning up the dialogue and everything and, and stuff like that. And we'd switch seats and he'd be like, okay, you clean up the dialogue here. And, you know, I'd get, you know, we had the Cedar and the Dolby unit and everything and we'd just go through and clean everything up. And uh I wanted to work at Skywalk. <laughs> yeah, and, and I remember. I'm cheating a little bit because Bonnie did yeah. a great, uh, great talk on our podcast. Was, you, you kind of you started off in the machine room. You just kind of worked your way. Yeah, you know, got in any way I mean, you could, and then the, yeah, and then to, just figure out how to get to America, how to do that, how to again. I mean, I just started again when I got here. It's like okay, go back into the machine room, you know, and just like start again. But totally worth it because. Skywalker man, it's great. <laughs> well, that's great. I want to jump into talking about the the shows and and the reason the reason why all of you amazing artists are nominated for for Emmys. And Jose, I got to start with you because I you know Tiger King just I think really captivated everybody's imagination, and it came out at the perfect time when we were all going into covid lockdown and we were spending a lot of time at home and i think we all got riveted by this kind of just crazy story of these amazing characters it's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire there are more captive tigers in the u.s than there are in the wild throughout the world animal people are nuts man they're all crazy I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. And I wanted to ask you, so so, so you do production sound mixing. So you're on the set, you're, you're recording um, with, uh, with camera. Um, and obviously there were a lot of interviews um, balanced with a lot of archival footage in, in the show. So how long were you on uh, Tiger King and, and, and were you there for all of the interviews or how, how did it flow? Because I know th they were shooting on that for a long time, right? Right, right. My server was on on and off for like two years. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very interesting. The first time the producer approached me was um, the film has two directors. So one of them called me and um, she got my reference here in New York and asked me if I was comfortable to work near big cats, you know, that I had done before, was it being close contact. And then I thought for a moment that I'd been in many situations, I'd been traveling and feeling nature, but uh, never really got that close to cats as I did in this film. So say so yes, and it sounded very interesting and the opportunity to be there. At first I thought it was gonna be about big cats. I didn't really, I think the film was, uh, as we began, it was still developing and uh, what it has become, but, um, so the moment you get to one of these, you know, the first place I went was in South Carolina. And then uh, the moment you get outside one of the zoos, they usually near some country road, you go in and you start already hearing roars of big animals, of, of lions and tigers. So you go in and then um, all of a sudden you start to meet the characters you know, and then you'll see what they are too. They are, and I guess people who get into that activity, they have to be very special too because they, these zoos are like show, they, they make shows too. So it's a mixture of zoo and show house. And um, so they are very different and um, had many different situations in, which were interesting, like, um, like uh, when recording sound, you have your windscreen. I was always told to hide the windscreen below because sometimes they go on parade with these big animals, a handler holding the animal, but if they saw something fuzzy or hairy, like a microphone like that, they could come and attack it. Oh, they would think it was an animal and they would come yeah, out. Yeah, would do. So I was always kind of have to stay in the back hiding my microphone. And uh, also like uh, filming, another situation we were filming these, the couple had two adult chimps. So they were having dinner together, the four of them. So also that kind of situation, we had to keep our faces down, never look up in the, to the chimp's eyes. So as long as there was some kind of tension in the, when near the animals. But overall was, uh, 
I think it was one of the most interesting films I've worked on because of that, you know, for that contact with big animals like that. And uh, also a lot of American culture, this kind of culture, Americana, right, that you don't see everywhere if you live in California, New York. And you see these guys that are in the middle of nowhere, but uh, they develop these characters probably out of TV and they are very flamboyant. And it was was fun to work on it too. The film was like an, peeling an onion, you know, each time would, um, and the director had a big skill in uh, dealing with characters. And, uh, and he also had big knowledge about cats and animals, wild animals, wildlife. So it was a big discovery. During the interviews, they were long and uh, you'd see how the thing would evolve. They would review facets of themselves that were very interesting. And I think the film took a lot from those interviews and went into, it was always very fast. We'd go in and there were activities we had to jump. My people had to work really close to the camera, you know, because uh, a lot of situations had two cameras because things happened too quickly. And it was like that all the way to the end it was very, uh, always very exciting because you were there. There was that kind of sense of danger too. And um, I had a chance to record a lot of roars, you know, to, when the, during feeding time, they were very noisy, the, the big cats. So it was, was a good opportunity to have to record that. So, so how did you approach it? Did you have did you have most everyone on wireless mics, and then you also had booms, or did you were you no. hiding microphones kind of around the set, or how, how did you how did no, you approach the, it? Usually, we'd follow. You know, there were the sit down interviews, and then we'd, uh, for the very test scenes, would wire the characters, the main characters that we were following. They were doing some activity. They were touring the the campus, the zoo, or they were feeding the animals. We were doing. And uh, they were having conversations with um, workers there or visitors. So I would, it was a combination of uh, wireless and for the characters and boom for the other people that came around and talked to them. But we had to be quick, you know, always uh, happening very fast. Of course. Like, yeah, I had to predict a lot of situations. I had sometimes to jump because all these fences were protected and uh, these people, we had to follow them wherever they went. So sometimes they would go into these enclaves that the public couldn't go, but we could go very close. Were you in the, you, were you in the, in the pens with some of the tigers? At, at, no, the we're not. I mean, there was just a little fence like between us and the tigers. So sometimes once in a downtime, uh, we were waiting for something and I was started uh, with my iPhone filming this tiger big male tiger and then uh, you know it's so they're so amazing they 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 have no fear of humans right they come to you they ignore you they don't even look at you they pass to you but this i was very you know having fun filming the other tiger drinking water playing all of a sudden he lifted his tail and sprayed on my face <laughs> it was a big surprise i had with the tiger i guess he i was there for too long he, he felt i was uh, was his, part of his territory. You needed to be marked. I needed to be marked. And there were many, <laughs> yeah, there were many interesting situations. Like one of the characters riding an elephant through his neighborhood, you know, was like a very surreal, had a lot of surreal scenes like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I just had this image of you, you know, obviously you originally come from Brazil. I had this image of you just like on the set with your recording unit, just with your headphones just shaking your head at this insanity that was unfolding in front of you. Yeah, it was really insane. Well, this is a rare opportunity because when we have these post-production conversations, it's so it's so rare and it's such a treat to have the production sound mixer with us. My my fellow post-production people, do you have any questions for Jose or any any uh you know any long-standing uh, long-standing things you want to bones you want to pick with the production sound mixer? <laughs> oh, no, sure. I mean, like, can we have the tiger recordings? We all want the tiger recordings now, Jesse. <laughs> That's right, yeah. No, we had a lot of that. Them pacing, them drinking water, them doing all kinds of stuff, and really close. Swimming, there were a lot of tigers swimming. Awesome. Yeah. No, but that, you know, sometimes you work like that, you have to make decisions yourself with sounds to get. Sometimes the producers, directors are not really 
thinking of sound and they're thinking more about content and image. So you kind of have to almost take that role to think of the sound, which is, is which is good. I don't would they give Would they give you time to to like to get the wild tracks and stuff? Would yeah, there is time, and I know how yeah. important the wild tracks are. You know, I learned very young. I was all studying about myself, and I was mm. young. You know, listening just to wild tracks, and uh, and you you listen to them in an abstract way, right? And you know that those sounds you can use in many different situations to create a certain mood or state of minds. So it was the most fun is to record that. I have a question. How long were the, the takes? This guy seemed to go on and on and on forever. Uh, <laughs> were you always rolling? Were you always rolling? It was like the the whole thing was to always roll. Because they, they were just, you know, they were wired and they were something could happen anytime. So we just had to roll all the time. Would you just wire them all up? Would you just like mic them all up and then just like Well the main characters I would wire them. Yeah, you yeah. have to. Yeah, and then just other people that on, they met on the way in their walkings, and then we would uh, try to get rid of the bone. Yeah. There was no tiger around or big cat. It was a very interesting, uh, it was, in, was as interesting as the film came out. It was the opportunity to meet all those kind of characters you don't meet in your normal life. Yeah. Did you have any idea that it was going to have the impact that it did when it came out? No, I knew there was something very special, but I didn't know there was going to be so, you know, popular. And it's all over the world. A lot of people saw it in Brazil. Yeah, it's not only here. And I know in the UK too, I heard people. It was it's, very popular yeah. there. Well, too. like you say, yeah. Like that part of American culture is kind of, I mean, I don't know uh, when I watched it, like, what is this? I know. <laughs> Well, I've spent, I've spent my entire life here, and I was shocked and disturbed by it as well. So. Yeah, I'm going to say that's not a full collection of American culture. At the, at the... <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but, but, it's no, like, but it's specific it's, kind of thing, like, right? Yeah. Do honor. Yeah. I mean, you don't think that those people exist, but then after you realize that there are so many of them, there are so many of these zoos in the country. Yeah, The U.S. has the largest tiger population in the world, and a lot of them are on the private hands. Yes, people like having those animals. Well, that actually, that actually, um, I think makes a great segue into uh, another story of a very specific American culture that we probably didn't know much about before we started to watch it. And Logan, I'm going to turn to you to talk a little bit about Cheer. So this is a this is a six hour uh, multi part documentary on Netflix as well about collegiate, uh, you know, cheerleading. Uh, and I can honestly say I knew very, very little about it before I started this show. They've won the grand championship several times. They could beat anybody. People from all over the country come here to cheer for Monica. Navarro, where is it located? Zoom in. Where? I guess I'm going there. My goal was to be the best cheer program in the country. You're the sound designer and the, the supervising sound editor on the show. And I think for most of the, most people who aren't in our industry, uh, when they're when they kind of come to a piece of content like cheer, which is on the face of it, a pretty straightforward um, documentary about kind of a process documentary, following people as they go through this. I think that they may not really be thinking about what the creative sound work that goes into that. So can you talk a little bit about, about cheer and, 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 and cheer specifically, but also I'm really curious about the role of sound design and kind of abstract sound in documentary film. Sure. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I can agree with you. I knew nothing about uh, collegiate cheerleading. And I think like they talk about in the first episode, they talk about how most people have this view of what cheerleading is, uh, being on the sidelines for football games. So it was a very big shock, you know, as the episodes kept coming out and just the insane athlete set of, athlete, of the athletes that they were. Um, but yeah, for that one, um, it is a very different approach than um, something that's scripted because we're trying to go for something that sounds very realistic, but it can't be so realistic that it doesn't sound, uh, there's nothing interesting about it. There still needs to be moments that pop. There still needs to 
moments that capture your ear. Um, so our dialogue editor, Caleb, did a fantastic job of being able to help bridge that gap as well. Um, because a lot of the moments take place while they're in an, an auditorium and there's, it's, it's like chaos. As you, as you can see, there's people on the sidelines yelling, there's people jumping, tumbling. Um, the sound of the lights was um, a pretty big um, thing in a, a lot of our tracks. And so being able to clean up that and have control over how much lights are we going to have, you know, when there's quiet moments, that can be part of it where, you know, it's really quiet now. So now we're hearing the lights. Now we're hearing, you know, other people breathing instead of just a wall of sound. So that was um, a cool thing to be able to do was to be able to take different moments of people chatting and enter those in as there's things on, on the screen happening right in front of you. Um, otherwise it gets kind of sucked out and you lose a lot of that detail. Um, a lot of it is also up to the client too. So you, you can kind of have one way where they want things that are really um, sound design heavy and there's a lot of whooshes and these slow motion shots, you hear some cool sounds. This one was not, you know, approached that way. They wanted it to be very, um, like very, very documentary focused. Like this is what's happening. So with that one, we had to do a lot of work on the backgrounds and really figure out what backgrounds are gonna work. And the way we do our backgrounds, they are very specific and we're choosing different layers that obviously are not gonna collide with each other, but thinking about where they are in Texas, you know, um, you know what time of day it is, like what kind of sounds the crickets are making at this hour opposed to this hour. So really paying attention to a lot of those nuances that I think the average person may not uh, pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, um, it really helped fill, um, feel the atmosphere because a lot of the, the interviews that you see there, it's very dry, it's quiet. There's this really beautiful music underneath. Um, and so we really wanted to make sure that those places felt authentic. Um, and even with, once again, going back to the auditorium, um, we had to really make decisions. Are we going to use the lav here or are we using the boom? Because if we use the lav, now we're losing the sound of the room uh, because this, what this person's talking about is very important, um, but we can't lose the sound of the room. And so as most of you guys know, when you're mixing loves and boom, you can start running into phasing problems. Um, so we had to really focus on what's the important part here and are we going to have the sounds of the backgrounds um, from the boom in there or are we going to make those ourselves because it's too loud and we really need to focus on what this person's saying. Hey, while we're tired, we need to hit that pyramid. Stand up, stand up. While you're tired, let's go. Come on, you guys got it. With a positive attitude. Here we go. Ready? And. Amanda. No. Okay. Pray for me. So yeah, it was a cool challenge. It was, it was fun to be able to um, bring those moments in. But I know one thing you wanted to talk about was the sound of these cheerleaders, um, you know, hitting and these impacts. And uh, so I got, I got, I got, I got to set this yeah. up. This is insane. So we were talking about this earlier, and and you see these shots of of these guys, and they're looking up in the air, and they're like, "What are they looking up in the air?" And yeah, then suddenly, well, suddenly this girl just drops into. And I was listening to it on headphones. And I was like, "They, cl you clearly cut some some sweeteners and bumped up the sounds of those impacts when those girls would hit." But I, I loved your explanation of it because that's not what they were miking for, so they didn't get it. Right. Right. So um, when we use the lav mic, when you when we use the lav mic on that, you can definitely hear that these girls are hitting so hard. Um, that's why in the show you see a lot of them are talking about their ribs hurting. Um, and so with the lav, it, it was unusable. It was just this really awful garbled mess. Um, so sometimes we do that if it works, but usually 
um, we used boom on that. But then at that moment, we have no impact. And when, you know, it's all about storytelling as they're talking about how hard they're hitting and why they're hurting, um, you know, it calls itself that we need to add, you know, these sweeteners in there because it helps tell the story. Um, I mean, the first couple of times we watched it, you know, I'm even though we're cutting sounds to it, I'm just grimacing. I'm like, these are these are rough. Um, so not even just the impacts as they're all on the floor, um, as they're doing flips and tumbles, you know, recovering all their feet, um, hitting those moments when they're popping up, spinning and then landing uh, just because a lot of that wasn't caught or it was just too light and we needed to have some weight to it. So that's what we're adding, you know, high-end sweeteners of the cloth and their feet touching, but then we're also adding the low impact as well. Because underneath that little tiny pad is just hardwood floor. Um, and so, you know, that resonates as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. You know. I love that. I think that, you know, most people have no idea that all of that, all, all that work is going into it. But you said something that I thought was really great too, which is like the client also is really important in terms of, you know, establishing those moments for you to have abstract sound design. One of the things that really caught my ear about Sheer was dynamics and, and, and how you alternated, you know, very, very, you know, live moments. I, I think there was, a, there was a moment in episode four where there was sort of a dramatic kind of emotional moment. And then you needed, as an audience member, you needed a little beat. And right then was a montage of them coming into the gym late at night and just turning on lights. And it was this beautiful, like, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds of just lights coming on. And you guys covered that um, with sound effects really, really just nicely. And it, it, and it just, it made such a melancholy moment with sound wow. effects. Really quick. And we get excited for those moments, even though it seems super simple. It's it's just a empty room with you know lights. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of thoughts you know that go into that. And um, the other sound editor, Sean, you know, really did a good job with having you know fluorescent lights that came on you know right away. But then you're still hearing the ping and being able to get those panned you know the right way. Where oh, you're hearing a little bit of ping over here, and this one's on you know over here. But now you're hearing the reverberance of, you know, the pinging and it was just an exciting moment and it's a very simple, but as a sound person, you know, it's just so satisfying when you hear, when you hear it completed and especially um, once it was mixed, you know, it sounded incredible. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about as well, cause obviously you're nominated for episode six, which is the big climax uh, episode. Yeah. And so it's, it's, you know, you, you've been, this entire series is building towards this one, two minute and 15 second competition right. In, uh, in, in Daytona, Florida. And then you get into the episode and you learn that the company that controls this whole competition didn't allow them access to shoot the competition, right? So apparently the workaround was, you got, they just sent a ton of people in there with iPhones to capture yeah. it. And that's the <laughs> climax of the show. So you had all this iPhone material coming in. How did you build that sequence? Yeah, so that was kind of a, um, that was a surprise. And, uh, you know, I was spotting it and I saw that tag come up. And I said, surely that's not really what it means. Um, and then, you know, I, I see the footage and, you know, the footage looks fine, but, and then you see the one track of that, the only track you get of, you know, iPhone audio. And, you know, we reach out to production. Do you guys have anything else? Were there any mics at all? That's literally what you got. And so, um, you know, the, the problem with that is, um, as most of the viewers know, is when you're shooting with an iPhone, you know, now you have a lot of people talking off axis um, and a lot of those things are important. Um, and so subtitles did have to be inserted on some of them where there was just, they weren't even close to, to being on the mic, but uh, it, was, it was a challenge. And uh, one thing that our dialogue, did that really helped was he found um, you know pulling handles out on some of this footage he was able to find moments 
of essentially like loop group wallet type stuff that fit with the production really, really well that we could use to help fill in some of those gaps and kind of overlap things. Um, one of the hardest parts, of course, is when they're actually on stage and you have, um, you know, iPhone footage and there is music pumping. There is, um, you know, a thousand girls and, and men screaming as loud as they can. Um, and we still have to hear everything. Uh, but when you listen to the guy, it sounds rough. It's, uh, it is a wall of noise. And so we had to build a little bit more of, um, once again, their performance um, and kind of bring those things, you know, that audio down, use some of those crowd swells that we had captured earlier when there was no music. So we could just kind of implement those. And then once again, you know, sweeten all the footsteps, all of the hits, all of the landings, you know, all of that stuff had to be covered because it all needed to pop through because without it, it just, it seemed odd. It just looked like music with screaming with people running and you're seeing them hit hard and there's just nothing there. So it was definitely a challenge, but I think it, I think it turned out fantastic. And I was pretty excited once, um, our, our mixer touched it and did some stuff to help that music pop out even more without making everything loud. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was also just a shock. <laughs> it was a, it was a shock going from this beautiful, you know, 4k footage, um, and, you know, these mm -hmm. amazing production mixers than to, you know, students with, with iPhones running around. And, um, so yeah, it was a big contrast, but I think we bridged that gap well. It was amazing how well it worked. I think when I read that, I thought, oh, this could be just a, just a disaster, but it, it really, <laughs> you still got the emotion of the moment. Cool. Cool. That's Joe, cool. Joe, I want to I talk with you about, about Hollywood. This is, um, I really enjoyed this show. It, 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 it was kind of a, it was a really lovely kind of reimagining about post-World War II Hollywood and kind of what life was, was like back then, but with a much more socially progressive theme, obviously, than, than what was reflected in real life. This town's all about dreams. And some of my customers don't just come here for gas. What's the password again? Dreamland. Dreamland. I want to go to Dreamland. Get in the car with them, have a drink maybe. You know, sometimes... Sometimes you have to service. No, I came here to be a movie star. I want to take the story of Hollywood and give it a rewrite. Ace has a picture that we're very excited about. It's about fame and what Hollywood does to people. This is our screenwriter, Archie Coleman. Pleasure to meet you. You're colored. I love it. You've obviously worked with Ryan Murphy quite a bit in the, in, in the past, but um, what was your first reaction to the material and how did you respond to those themes? Oh, I think, um, you know, the, the time that I spent with Ryan and I've been with him since um, he finished Nick Tuck. Uh, and he was a no sound guy, but I think there's a running theme that goes throughout every show that he does. And I think it has to do with uh, the fact that we're all the same. You can be black, brown, white, Asian, you can be gay, straight, trans, whatever. We all have really interesting stories to tell. And he really pays little attention, or maybe he's paying a lot of attention to the fact that he can put people in those situations and tell the same story. And it's universal. So, um, it's really interesting too, because this, this panel shows the power of sound because Logan and Jose have to do, have to add sound to make it more real. And we have to add sound sometimes to make it less real. So in Hollywood, um, it is a reimagining. It's like Ryan's kind of once upon a time in Hollywood, where if Hollywood were accepting to everyone, it could have been like, like this or like that. So in fact, um, loud sounds, musical transitions really help emphasize the, the period and the, and the changes. I, I mean, a lot of times Ryan would just pick a, another song to go behind a scene change or a sequence change. And it was about, it was more about taking that song and either playing it big as the transition and then weaving it into the scene as a source piece or 
It was about hitting the, the next scene transition with something iconic from the period. So you had all the glitz and glamor of Hollywood. You had the beautiful photography. But when it came to nailing the period, we, with the help of our sound supervisor, Gary McGregor, really stressed how, um, how to hit these transitions with something that said, okay, we're in the 1940s. Okay, we're in the 1930s, you know, to, to really help us along and keep us in there, but not get in the way of the fantasy. So um, I think the themes that play through are, are unique to Ryan. And I think, uh, you know, we just push the show along um, and try not to get in the way of the theme. Yeah. Has Ryan's approach to, you know, storytelling through sound evolved over the, the years that, that you work with them? I tend to, in my, and I, I tend to think, you know, you know, obviously with something like Glee, that's, that's a very musically driven show, but some of the, like the American horror story stuff is much more sound effects driven. So um, what, how has his approach changed over the years that you've worked with him? Well, um, interesting that you say that because Nip Tuck was literally dialogue and music. There were maybe some door closes, maybe a phone, and that was it. I remember the first episode of Glee, I listened to the picture editor's cut of it, and I was listening, and Ryan was in the room, and he's like, what, what's that? What's that sound? And I said, that's room tone. Take it out. Get rid of it. Take it out. <laughs> and we went from there to where we were with Glee, where every transition was hit, you know, hit you over the head with it. And then American Horror Story became more of a, a cornucopia of uh, sound design, sound effects, um, vocal treatments, and music. And it all had to play at the same time. But remember, Ryan is a writer. Right. So Ryan wants to hear every single word that he's written. And we have to play all of that stuff, get the sound to enhance this horrific thing, and yet still be able to come back, I mean, like, back up to hear his line of dialogue. I mean, I'm sure Bonnie goes through the same thing all the time. I'm sure each, each and every one of us. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting, too, that, um, you know, there's certain themes that you work with. And sometimes the composer picks up on that theme and carries it through. And sometimes it's a sound effect. And, uh, you know, so for us, uh, we can we can kind of poke at a thematic thing in horror story we got to play our themes in asylum there are certain screams that play throughout the entire series that we come back around to time and time again and once we do that with the help of the composer then you have a more thematic story that's playing underneath the dialogue the whole time so it's a it's a multi-level thing i think we as sound designers and sound uh, mixers are as much storytellers as the picture editor is, as the writer is. We just have to find the room to fit it in there. Uh, one of the things that I'm impressed about Mandalorian is that you have this kind of Sergio Leone thing that Ludwig did in the music. And then I'm like, is that sound design or is that score? Or what? I gotta ask Ani about this. <laughs> and, and, so, and the next thing you know, you're in this tremendous fight scene, which is, it's awesome. It, it's really great.
Bonnie, you want to take that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think pro probably in a lot of those moments, it's like, it's just making the decision about how everything's going to sit with each other. So like def definitely, certainly when you're dealing with like something that's so effects heavy as I think Star Wars in general is you've got to be really careful to just not exhaust your audience with one thing or the other. You know, if you like, if you just like go at it, like a powerhouse of music from beginning to end, that's going to be exhausting. If you go at it with sound effects from beginning to end, it's exhausting. If you go at it with both of them continuously all the time, it's exhausting. So you've got to like, you just got to find that shape. And so for a lot of those moments, it's like, is the music part of the backgrounds here? Like essentially, you know, it's kind of going to sit in with that thing and it's going to, you've just got, it's just figuring out like what, like Joe says, what is going to tell the story at what point, you know, it's, it, it, it's how to support everything that's going on. Like the show has existed up until the point it's come to sound perfectly well. Do you know what I mean? You don't want to, <laughs> you, you're not kind of going in there like, well, sound is going to figure everything out here. It's like everything else is doing its job and you've just got to do yours to, to fit in with, you know, the story. So yeah, certainly that moment, it, it's like, are we waiting on some kind of tension? You know, if you if you play something too soon or, or too big, you're going to like ruin that moment. So it's just, you know, I kind of go with that thing is like sitting back on something is just as important as just like pushing on it, you know. So and certainly with like the, the first season of, of The Mandalorian, that was that was like a lot of just figuring everything out is like, you know, we all kind of show up to it like new. Do you know what I mean? Like on your first day of school, it's like, okay, what have I got? <laughs> who's doing like who's doing what? What have I got to like weave, like weave together? And it's kind of like figuring out. I mean, I did, I did like have Ludwig's demos and stuff, um, and you know, obviously temp music and stuff um, when I was cutting, which is useful, so I can kind of reference what's going to be what. I mean really at that time it's, you kind of take things with a pinch of salt though as well do you know what I mean well, well Bonnie I did I did want to ask you about that because you know uh, obviously you're building something new but that lives in the Star Wars universe and we all know very well what the Star Wars universe sounds like and it's interesting that you brought up music because I think of you know Star Wars movies if the movie is 120 minutes long there's going to be 118 minutes of John Williams score 19, right. 119. 119 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but you got to rethink all those decisions for Mandalorian. Like, and in some cases you, you kept things that are very familiar with the Star Wars universe, but then you went in very, very different directions. So can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think, I think what's great in general, as well as when you're dealing with TV for a start. And then when you're dealing with like a, a franchise that's got like a new format, is you got a bit more that you know you can kind of take more liberties with it and everybody feels a bit freer to you know to try stuff out uh dave filoni certainly will always just be like let's try this without the music <laughs> you're like oh not really you know. <laughs> it's like well once upon a time it existed like that but i gotta put all that back together now you, you know what i mean so that that you know there was there was a lot of playing with that you know there are certain rules that you kind of you, you know you kind of follow when you're dealing with star wars certain things sound like certain things and certain things sound like certain things and then you know you've got to just figure out how to like happily put it together so you you, you never want anything to feel like or you're just i don't know like re redoing stuff all the time do you know what i mean it's got to be its own thing and for the mandalorian that was certainly like it's going to be its own thing but it's going to fit within this this galaxy as well and i think actually i think what was great i mean the music was so successful because it was it was i mean i think it was great because it was so different it was like this is great and it's it had its own personality it felt like its own character do you know what i mean when when you kind of when you deal with it you put it in and you just like go for it i mean you know you dance around sometimes to it. I'm not going to lie. You go a bit crazy sometimes, you know. It's just, you've been here by yourself for a long time. You know, <laughs> kind of kick it up. You're like, this is cool, man. 
I'll go for it. <laughs> I mean, who did the who did the weapons? Because they really sounded unique. I mean, they didn't sound anything like any of the of the movies. Did you design all that stuff? No, Dave Acord. So Dave Acord did did all the design for for stuff. And Dave, you know, Dave's done. You know. So I mean, so much. He's been he's been with Star Wars for a long time. Yeah, Yeah. he's like yeah, and you know, and for for a lot of that, like, you know, a lot of the stuff um, Dave, you know, designed from his amazing brain for the Mandalorian, and then other stuff we will you know source as well. I mean, we we've got to be resourceful. Like we're still we're still dealing with a you know television budget, so you know it's not every single. Thing you you see is new it's like well we know we can deal with this from here 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 so and a lot of the times when when I cut because I work with Matt and Dave quite a lot it's a case of like well I'll do it and then it'll be a case of like you know put my hand up and ask for something you know I'll be like hi <laughs> maybe this here or something um but yeah no certainly like all Mando's weapons all his new gear and everything Dave made made all of that stuff it's so cool it does sound really cool I had a question for you. Um, I know you guys mixed this one in 7.1.2, right? Or Yeah. Um, how did that, being able to storytell, you know, using that platform um, kind of expand a little bit more than just this typical 5.1 or 7.1? Um, Logan, I just want to acknowledge that I love you for asking the Dolby Atmos <laughs> question for me. I did not, I did not, I did, I did not plant that, uh, I, but I, I, I do appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Well, I, um, yeah, I mean, I used, I did use it, I used it a lot. I mean, I really enjoy it. I am again this season as well. It's like, oh, hi. Um, I mean, it's, it's great just for, I, I find for like, just like the immersive kind of space, you know, and for getting movement as well. I'm kind of, you know, addicted to large panning and stuff. So all of that helps, helps with it, you know, overhead ships. Who doesn't love an overhead ship? Um, but just for, it, it, just for stuff like tension as well, like where, you know, where you're putting something can, can really, like, help with the tension. I mean, it's, yeah, of course, it sounds great in stereo, I'm sure. But, like, you know, just, just you know, I don't know. Everything's always back here when it's scary. Do you know what I mean? It's like, ooh. Um, <laughs> and up there. You know, wildlife. Wildlife is going crazy up here, and and everything like that. But I mean, I love I love mixing with it. It folds down easy. I fold it de- kind of down, not fully into the back, but just like you know, just just close to it. Yeah, Glenn, I have to say that I I think that Atmos is is spectacular for what we're trying to do because with the streaming platforms, we're able to to stream uncompressed digital. Uh, so it sounds just like it should, um, like it did on the dub stage, which has <laughs> always been the bane of our existence as, as re-recording mixers. Yeah. But, but the fact that we can now, we have more room for the dialogue, we have more room for the music, we can spread things out, environments can be wide and, and huge, and you can still hear everything. Yeah. I, I think it's really... Um, enhanced what we do and what we're able to deliver you know for unfortunately i think people are out there and they're starting to catch on maybe not as quickly as we would like but <laughs> but i, oh, I, I see somebody posting that they just got a, an atmos soundbar which uh you know it helps you know it, it still yeah. gives you a, a small percentage of what it's like so i think it's uh, i think it's catching on yeah well, I, 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 I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> so I know we've only got a couple of minutes left um, and we do have a couple of questions that I, I wanted to, um, to, to pose. Uh, Jose, actually, I think this, was, this is a good one for you. The question is, how do you see the pandemic changing production protocols going forward? Um, have, you, have you done any production work during the pandemic or how, what's, how are yeah, things uh, working for you now? Well, here in New York, uh, during the difficult times between March and May, it was pretty much closed. There was, I got a few calls to do to work on stories about COVID, but I didn't really take them. But after May, 
then we begin some experiments, you know, like um, I've worked in situations where the producer director don't come and they are there on the iPad. It's just the camera, sound and assistant and the iPad asks the question, the person responds to it. And we're always trying, you know, everyone wears masks, sometimes do N95 and uh, avoiding miking people, wiring people, trying to record just with uh, stands mm. and booms. But it's picking up. It's not a lot, but I hear people working more and more. For the rest of you, how has, how has COVID affected uh, your post-production work? Mm, it's very, it's even more solitary than usual, I suppose. I mean, our building is open now, but, to, you know, there's very strict things to adhere to. If we leave the room, mask and, you know, um, no, no clients are in the room. We're doing everything kind of like this and and and, and streaming. We kind, of, um, we kind of find ourselves on an island uh, when we go into work. Uh, and mm. for me, there was always a flood of work, and all of a sudden, because production stopped, uh, there's hasn't been as much. It's mostly fixes. Uh, you know, I have a series on Netflix that's coming up and. I've been doing QC fixes on that. But other than that, the new material won't come in until maybe December, January. Then everybody's going to want to have their show mixed all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's going to it's going to create a back uh, a jam. In the I'll be available if you need anything. Jam. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, the the, 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 the internet says that Bonnie's new show drops on October 30th, so she'll be available. We were lucky, yeah, Mm because for you know the shooting had wrapped on the Mandalorian, so it's like okay, that one's that one's good, but pretty, I don't know, yeah, everything else is like. (laughs) So one uh, one final question, um, and this came through: What would you tell young aspiring students of sound mixing design? when considering internships. And I would also just tack on, where would you, where would you advise students who are interested in this field to get started? Um, internship, film school, um, what's, I, I know everybody has their own path to entry, but any, any practical advice that any of you would have? Um, sure, I'll chime in for a little bit. Um, I think internships are fantastic. I, I didn't do an internship. I had a couple of friends did and it was great. Um, I did a lot of just free work or um, very cheap work. And, um, you know, there is a saying that when you're doing um, cheap work, you're doing a lot of work because it's a ton of work and you're getting paid very little. And then when you get to a professional status, you're, you know, you're getting paid more money and it's not as botched as, you know, some of these other things. But I think for me, that really helped me um, get, you know, a good volume of work, but then it helped me understand how to deal with issues, you know, you know, sound effect issues when things are really, really bad. So I would suggest, you know, really talking to as many people as you can and doing work, whether it's, you know, for 200 bucks, 300 bucks, whatever, you know, you're getting experience um, and not being afraid to ask people. um, That's, I'm a talker. So I I talked to a lot of people and I think that helped me. And, um, you know, not just asking them, you know, if they have a job, you know, just check and see like, hey, what are you working on? And really kind of making it a conversation instead of always asking, because that's, that's obnoxious when, you know, people are just always asking you for things. So if you can um, just kind of come alongside people and just see what they're interested in, show, you know, mutual interests in, you know, that I think people are a little more willing to, you know, either give you work or help you or, you know, drop their knowledge on you. So that's, that's kind of what worked for me. Joe, can you talk a little bit about mentoring? I know that that's, uh, that's something that, that's important for you. Sure. Um, we've actually tried to get more uh, companies out there to uh, sponsor, you know, uh, to, to mentor young people. And um, you can't really always get uh, sound houses to do it. There are certain issues with, you know, um, you cannot, you know, no one's allowed to see this picture before it's released. And so there's certain hiccups there, but uh, at studios and at sound houses, mostly private sound houses, you, you should just go. 
and you should start. And whether you start in the vault or as a runner or a receptionist, you need to be in the building. And then once you're in the building, you find the person or the place that you belong and you go and you sit with those people and you talk to them and you can learn. Each one of us is willing to help. And that's where mentoring really begins. But uh, the academy is very strong on their mentorship program. And so we'll do more to, to reach out and see if we can't get more people to mentor, you know, the young. That's great. Well, we've gone a couple of minutes over, but uh, this was really a fun conversation. And it's been a great pleasure for me to spend a little time this afternoon with you, uh, amazing artists, talking about your work. Um, congratulations on your Emmy nominations. Well-deserved to each and every one of you. Um, Bonnie, Jose, Joe, uh, and uh, Logan, thank you so much for participating in the conversation. And, uh, and congratulations on all the fantastic work. This is Glenn Kaiser from the, the Dolby Institute signing off. Thanks, everyone. Good luck, guys. All right. Good luck. Nice meeting you all. <laughs>